The second B. Bankers. Banks were created to protect your money from bandits. But what if you found out your banker was a bandit? What if you found out that the very people you entrusted with your money were siphoning off more money than you knew about and doing it legally? While he was New York Attorney General, New York Governor Elliot Spitzer investigated a number of investment banking firms and large mutual fund companies, finding them guilty of several illegal practices. The very people the public entrusted with its money were skimming a little more money than they should have been. The guilty companies were fined a trifling amount compared to the dollar amounts they took. While the paltry size of the fines is disturbing, what is even more disturbing is that these bankers are still in business today. The problem is that Elliot Spitzer's investigation was limited to investment banking firms in New York City. The problem of bankers taking money from innocent customers is a worldwide one. As more businesses stop caring for workers for life, more workers are forced to save for their own retirement. Workers do not have the money to hire professional financial services like businesses do. This is causing the pool of financially naive money to grow like a hot air balloon, making bankers and people who sell financial services to workers grow richer and richer. Today, workers' retirement funds are fueling a global economic boom. Retirement funds are an ocean of money, unprecedented in world history, guarded by bankers, not you. The third B. Brokers. Broker is another word for salesperson. In the world of money, there are brokers for stocks, bonds, real estate, mortgages, insurance, businesses, etc. One of the problems today is that most people are getting their financial advice from salespeople, not rich people. If you meet a rich broker, you need to ask if the broker got rich from his or her sales ability or financial ability. As you know, there are good brokers and bad brokers. Simply put, good brokers make you richer and bad brokers make excuses. The following is an abbreviated list of things that helped us find and keep good brokers. We look for brokers who were also students of their profession. We want to know if they invest in what they sell. After all, why should you invest in what they're selling if the broker doesn't have the confidence to invest in the same stocks? We wanted a relationship, not a transaction. Many brokers only want to sell. The fourth B, businesses. All businesses have something to sell. If they do not sell, they are out of business. I often ask, is this business's product or service making me richer or poorer? One of the reasons so many struggle financially is they buy products that make them poorer and then make themselves even poorer by paying for that product for years with high interest credit cards. If you want to be rich, become a customer of businesses that are dedicated to making you richer. For example, I am a long-term customer of a number of investment newsletters and financial magazines. I am also a customer of businesses that sell educational products and seminars. In other words, I am a good customer to some of my competitors. I like spending money on products or services that make me richer. The fifth B. Brides and Bows We all know that some people marry for money. Both men and women marry for money rather than love. Like it or not, money plays an important role in any marriage. 
Rich Dad called people who marry for money love predators. The more money you have, the more they love you. In his much-publicized divorce, Paul McCartney may have to give up 50% of his estimated $1 billion estate. That is a lot of money. This shows that McCartney has earned a lot of money as a musical genius, but his lack of financial IQ number two is costing him a lot of money that a little premarital planning might have saved him. The sixth B. Brothers-in-law. Death is the final exit. It is another time when predators appear, or I should say, vultures. If you are rich, not having a financial IQ can be expensive for your loved ones. Your brother-in-law's grandchildren, children you've never met, suddenly become family and come to cry at your funeral. If you have a high financial IQ, the percentage of your money these grieving relatives receive will be controlled by you even after you have moved on. Those with a high financial IQ have wills, trusts, and other legal means of protecting their wealth and final wishes from death predators. The seventh B. Barristers. You may remember the person who sued McDonald's claiming the coffee was too hot. That is an example of a financial predator using the court system to get your money. Millions of people are waiting for any excuse to use a lawsuit to get rich. This is why the seventh B is for barristers or lawyers. There are lawyers whose sole purpose in life is to take you to court and take your money. Knowing these predators are lurking, there are three things a financially intelligent person must do. Keep nothing of value in your name. It was my poor dad who proudly said, My house is in my name. Financially smart people would not have their houses in their names. Buy personal liability insurance immediately. Remember, you cannot buy insurance when you need it. You must buy it before you need it. Hold assets of value in legal entities. In the U.S., the good legal entities are C-corporations, S-corporations, limited liability corporations, LLCs, and limited liability partnerships, LLPs. There are also bad legal entities. These are sole proprietorships and general partnerships. The rules have changed. As you know, in 1974, workers needed to become investors saving for their retirement. This gave rise to the 401k. The problem with a 401k is that the government plugged this loophole for workers, too. Let me explain. When a person works for money, his or her income is taxed as earned income, the most highly taxed income. When a worker withdraws money from his or her 401k plan, that income comes out as, you guessed it, earned income. Guess what interest from savings is taxed at? Once again, earned income. This means a person who works hard, saves money, gets out of debt, and saves for retirement in a 401k plan is working for the most highly taxed income, earned income. This is not financially intelligent. People following these rules demonstrate a low financial intelligence because they give away a large percentage of their income. A financially intelligent person does not want a big paycheck. A financially educated person would rather be paid royalties or dividends because taxes are lower on these types of income. A knowledgeable investor at least knows enough to invest for portfolio or passive income. Personally, I am not trying to change the system. 
My personal philosophy is that it is easier to change myself than to change the system. In other words, I am not a person who battles the winds that drive windmills. Hence, I am not politically inclined. I don't believe politics or politicians are effective against those who run the world of money. It seems that most politicians, in order to be elected, need to be pawns of the very people who control the world's money. Most financial advisors are employees of these world bankers. I simply want to know the rules and play by the rules. This does not mean I believe the rules are fair or equitable. They aren't. The rules of money are what they are, and they change regularly. Besides, this new world of money, even though unfair, has done a lot of good. It has brought tremendous wealth and new products to the world, raising the standards of living everywhere. Quality of life for billions of people is improving. Money has done a lot of good. Unfortunately, these changes have come at great expense to many countries, our environment, and many people. Many have become very rich taking advantage of the financially naive. Many have become rich by taking the wealth of others. This is why financial IQ number two, protecting your money, is a very important financial intelligence. Ignorance is bliss, and that's what the financial predators are banking on, your ignorance making them blissfully rich. Chapter 5 Financial IQ number 3 Budgeting Your Money My poor dad often advised, Live below your means. My rich dad said, If you're going to be rich, you need to expand your means. In this chapter, you will find out why living below your means is not a financially intelligent way to become rich. You will learn about budgeting and that there are two kinds of budgets. One is a budget deficit and the other is a budget surplus. The reason financial IQ number three is so important is because learning how to budget for a surplus is the key to becoming rich and staying rich. A budget is a plan. One of the definitions of the word budget is a plan for the coordination of resources and expenditures. Rich Dad said a budget is a plan. He went on to say most people use their budget as a plan to become poor or middle class rather than a plan to become rich. Most people operate their lives on a budget deficit rather than a budget surplus. If you want to be rich, choose a budget surplus and create one by increasing income, not reducing expenses. A budget deficit. I have a friend in Atlanta who makes a lot of money. He has to make a lot of money. If he stops making a lot of money, his money problems will eat him alive. He has chosen to create a budget deficit. Every time Dan makes more money, he either buys a bigger house, a newer car, or takes an expensive vacation with the kids. He has another bad habit. Every 10 years or so, he marries a younger woman and has a new child. Dan grows older, but his wives are always about the same age, 25. Dan is an expert at taking a lot of money and making his money problems worse through deficits. A budget surplus. The second financial choice is to plan for a budget surplus. After making money, financial IQ number one, and protecting your money, financial IQ number two, Learning how to budget for a surplus is essential for achieving financial integrity. 
The following are a number of lessons I have learned from my rich dad and other wealthy people about budgeting for a budget surplus. Budget tip number one. A budget surplus is an expense. This is one of the best financial lessons my rich dad passed on to his son and me. Pointing to the financial statement, he said, you have to make a surplus an expense. In Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I wrote about the importance of paying yourself first. Most people know they should save, tithe, and invest. The problem is, after paying their expenses, most people don't have any money left to do so. In other words, most of the middle class's financial priorities are Priority number one, get a high-paying job. Priority number two, make the mortgage and car payments. Priority number three, pay bills on time. Priority number four, save, tithe, and invest. In other words, paying themselves first is their last priority. In order to create a budget surplus, a surplus must be a priority. The best way to make a surplus a priority is to reprioritize your spending habits. Make saving, tithing, and investing at least priority number two and list them as an expense on your financial statement. I know most of you can agree with the logic of what I am saying and agree that people need to make saving, tithing, and investing a higher priority. I also know this is easier said than done. So let me tell you how Kim and I handled this problem. Soon after we were married, we had the same financial problems many newlyweds have. We had more expenses than income. To solve this problem, we hired Betty the bookkeeper. Betty was instructed to take 30% of all income off the top as an expense and put that money in the asset column. Using simple numbers as an example, if we had $1,000 in income and $1,500 in expenses, Betty was to take 30% of the $1,000 and put that money in the asset column. With the remaining $700, she was to pay the $1,500 in expenses. Betty nearly died. She thought we were nuts. She said, you can't do that. You have bills to pay. She almost quit. You see, Betty was a great bookkeeper, but she budgeted like a poor person. She paid everyone else first and herself last. Since there was rarely anything left over, she paid herself nothing. Her creditors, the government, and bankers were all more important than Betty. Betty argued and fought. All of her training told her to pay everyone else first. The thought of not paying her bills or taxes made her weak in the knees. I finally got her to understand she was doing us a favor. She was helping us out. I explained to her that she was helping us solve a very big problem the problem of not having enough money. And as you know, solving problems make us smarter. When she understood she was actually creating income through expense, she was willing to go along with our plan to create a budget surplus. For every dollar of income, Betty would take 30 cents and put it in savings, tithing, and investing. With the 70 cents from every dollar left, she was to pay taxes, liabilities such as our mortgage and car payments, and then our bills such as electricity, water, food, etc. Needless to say, for a long time we came up short every month. There were some months Kim and I came up as much as $4,000 short. We could have paid the $4,000 from our assets, but that was our money. The asset column belonged to us. Instead of panicking, Betty was instructed to sit down with us and let us know how short we were each month. 
After taking a deep breath, Kim and I would then say, it's time to get back to financial IQ number one, making more money. With that, Kim and I would hustle around doing whatever we could to make more money. Kim, with her marketing background, often called businesses and offered to consult with them on their marketing plans. She also took modeling jobs and sold a line of clothes. I offered to teach investment or sales and marketing classes. For a few months, I trained sales teams at a local real estate company. I even made money by helping a family move and by clearing some land for another family. In other words, we swallowed our pride and did whatever it took to make the extra money. Somehow we always made it, and somehow Betty stuck with us and assisted us with our problem, solution, and process, even though she worried more about us than we did. Unfortunately, Betty could help us, but was unwilling to help herself. Last we heard, she retired and moved in with her single daughter. They share expenses, using Betty's payments from Social Security to pay them. They do not have a budget surplus. In 1989, Kim purchased her first rental property. She put down $5,000 and made $25 in positive cash flow per month. Today, Kim controls a multi-million dollar portfolio and over a thousand rental units. If we had not made investing an expense and paid ourselves first, we might still be paying everyone else first. God is our partner. As far as tithing goes, we continue to donate a large percentage to charitable organizations. It's important to give. As my very religious friend says, God does not need to receive, but humans need to give. Also, the reason we give is because tithing is our way of paying our partner, God. God is the best business partner I've ever had. He asks for 10% and lets me keep the other 90%. You know what happens if you stop paying your partners? They stop working with you. That is why we tithe. Budget tip number two. The expense column is the crystal ball. If you ever want to predict a person's future, just look at the person's discretionary monthly expenses. Rich Dad said, You can tell a person's future by looking at what they spend their time and money on. He also said, Time and money are very important assets. Spend them wisely. Budget tip number three. My assets pay for my liabilities. My poor dad believed in buying cheap. He thought being frugal was smart budgeting. We lived in an average house in an average neighborhood. My rich dad loved luxury. He lived in an affluent neighborhood and lived an abundant lifestyle. He did not like being cheap, although he was still careful with his money. If my poor dad wanted a luxury item, he simply denied himself the luxury of owning. He said, we can't afford it. If my rich dad wanted a luxury item, he simply said, how can I afford it? And the way he afforded it was to create an asset in the asset column, an asset that paid for the liability. In other words, he acquired assets by paying himself first. With the cash flow from the assets, he then purchased his luxury liabilities. If he wanted big luxuries, he first created big assets. What many people do is buy big luxuries first and never have enough money to purchase assets. Again, it's a matter of priorities. The Bentley Account Two years ago, I wanted a new car, a Bentley convertible. The price? $200,000.
I had the money in my asset column. I could have purchased the car for cash. The problem with buying a $200,000 Bentley with cash is that the car is worth only $125,000 the moment I drive it off the lot. That is not a smart use of my cash. Instead of spending my cash, I called my stockbroker Tom and authorized him to convert some of my gold and silver shares into $200,000 cash. His job was to take the $200,000 and turn it into $450,000. The project was named the Bentley account. It took Tom about eight months, but he finally called and said, you can buy your Bentley. I then wrote a check and paid for the Bentley with the cash that had been created by my assets. The reason I needed the account traded up to $450,000 is because the extra $50,000 was to offset the taxes on the capital gains and the commission that Tom made. At the end of the day, I had my Bentley, and I still had the original $200,000. If I had just paid cash for the Bentley without trading the account, I would have lost my $200,000 in cash assets and I would have lost an additional $75,000 due to the instant depreciation when I drove the car off the lot. In the chapter on Financial IQ number 2, Protecting Your Money, I wrote about how good brokers can make you rich and bad brokers make excuses. The Bentley account is an example of a good broker making me rich and happy, allowing me to afford the luxuries of life. So keep looking for a good broker if you don't already have one. At this point, it might be beneficial to remind you what an asset and a liability are. In my book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I define them simply as this. An asset is something that puts money in your pocket. A liability is something that takes money out of your pocket. There's nothing wrong with enjoying liabilities as long as you continue to pay yourself first and purchase them through the income generated by your assets. In the previous example, I used my assets to purchase my liability, and at the end of the day, I still had my asset and my Bentley. Budget tip number four, spend to get rich. When the going gets tough, most people cut back rather than spend. This is one reason why so many people fail to acquire and maintain wealth. For example, in the world of business, when a company's sales begin to drop, one of the first things the accountants do is cut back on spending. And one of the first things they cut back on is spending on advertising and promotion. With less advertising and promotion, sales drop, and the problem gets worse. One sign of high financial intelligence is knowing when to spend and when to cut back. When Kim and I realized we were in trouble, instead of allowing our bookkeeper Betty to cut back and pay bills first, we went into full-scale sales, marketing, and promotion. We spent time, money, and energy increasing our income. The lesson my rich dad taught me about financial intelligence is really about being resourceful. He taught his son and me to be resourceful and turn problems into opportunities. He said, when I was a kid, I was poor. I am rich today because I saw being poor as an opportunity, a very important resource God gave me to use to become rich. Financial IQ number three, budgeting your money, like financial IQ number two, protecting your money, is measured in percentages, the percentage of income that reaches your asset column. If taking 30% of your income is too hard, then start with 3%. For example, if you earn $1,000, instead of allocating $300 or 30% to your asset column, 
then direct 3% or $30 toward your asset column. If this 3% makes life harder, that's good. A hard life is good if it makes you more resourceful. The higher percentage you direct to your asset column, the higher your financial IQ. Today, Kim and I direct approximately 80% of our income directly into the asset column and do our best to survive on 20%. Also, we never say we cannot afford it and we refuse to live below our means. By continuing to keep things challenging, we become more resourceful, creating a more abundant life and a budget surplus. Chapter 6 Financial IQ number 4, Leveraging Your Money On August 9, 2007, the stock market plunged nearly 400 points. The Federal Reserve and central banks around the world began injecting billions in cash into the economy to make sure the panic did not spread. The market was still nervous the next day. As I was getting ready for the day, a newscaster on a morning television program was interviewing three financial planners and getting their opinions. Their unanimous advice was, don't panic, stay the course. When asked for further advice, all three said, save money, get out of debt, and invest for the long term in a well-diversified portfolio of mutual funds. As I finished shaving, I wondered if these financial experts had all gone to the same school for parrots. Finally, one advisor took a moment to say something different. She began by condemning the real estate market for causing the mess in the stock market, blaming greedy investors, unscrupulous real estate agents, and predatory mortgage lenders for causing the subprime mortgage mess, which led to the crash in the stock market. This advisor said, I told my clients that real estate was risky, and my advice has not changed. Real estate is a risky investment, and investors should invest for the long term in blue-chip stocks and mutual funds. As the financial planner on television was ending her attack on real estate, my wife Kim walked into the room and said, Remember, we have a closing today on the 300-unit apartment house. Nodding my head, I said, I'll be there. As I finished dressing, I thought, It's funny the financial advisor saying that investing in real estate is risky. The real estate markets are crashing at the same time Kim and I are buying a $17 million apartment house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we are excited about it. Are we on the same planet? So what is the difference between the financial planner who was negative on real estate and why was I excited about buying more property? The answers to that question are found in this chapter through two financial concepts, control and leverage. The new capitalism puts millions of workers' money into investments that allow them very little control or leverage. Because I have control over my investments, I am not as affected by market crashes. Because I have control, I am confident about using a lot more leverage. So what is leverage? In very simple terms, the definition of leverage is doing more with less. A person who puts money in the bank, for example, has no leverage. It's the person's money. A dollar in savings has a leverage factor of one to one. The saver puts up all the money. For my investment in the 300-unit apartment house, my banker put up 80% of the $17 million real estate investment. By using my banker's money, my leverage is one to four. For every dollar I invest in the deal, the bank lends me four dollars. 
So why did the financial planner on TV say that real estate was such a risky investment? Once again, the answer is control. If an investor lacks the financial intelligence to control the investment, the use of leverage is very risky. Since most financial planners put people into investments where they have no control, they should not use leverage. Using leverage to invest in something you do not control would be like buying a car without a steering wheel and then stomping on the gas pedal. Most of the people being hurt by the real estate meltdown are people who were counting on the real estate market to keep going up and increasing their home's value. Many people borrowed money against their inflated home value. Now their home may be worth less than what they owe. They have no control over the investment and are at the mercy of the market. The value of my $17 million apartment house is not based upon the price of the building. While price is important, I'm not counting on the price of the building going up due to some magical, unseen market condition. That is why the booms and busts of the markets do not concern me that much. The value of my apartment house is based upon the rent my tenants pay. In other words, the true value of the property is the value my tenants think the property is worth. If a renter thinks the apartment is a good value at $500 a month, that is the property's value. If I can increase the perceived value of my property to my tenants, I, not the market, have increased the value of the property. If I increase rents without an increase in perceived value, the tenant moves to the community down the street. The value of rental real estate, in this case my apartment houses, is dependent on jobs, salaries, demographics, local industry, and supply and demand of affordable housing. In a housing crash, the demand for rental units often goes up, which means demand and rents go up. If rents go up, the value of my rental real estate may go up, even if the value of residential real estate is coming down. There are three specific reasons why I'm not concerned about market crashes when it comes to the purchase of my 300-unit apartment house. One reason is because Tulsa, Oklahoma is an oil boomtown. High-paying jobs are plentiful. The oil industry needs workers, and transient workers need rental housing. The second reason is because a local college near the apartment house is doubling its number of students, but not the number of on-campus housing units, which increases demand for rental apartments. As many of you know, there is another baby boom, commonly referred to as the Echo Boomers, a generation just now entering college, which is 73 million strong. A majority of them will be renters. The third reason is because the fixed interest rate on the existing loan is very low. Low interest payments, lower expenses, and increasing income will increase property value, not market fluctuations. This means the 300-unit apartment house offers me both control and leverage. My job as an investor on this apartment house is to increase my leverage from 1 to 4 to possibly 1 to 10. That is, doubling the value of the property through operations, not the market. I can do this as long as I have control. Leverage is not risky. Many financial advisors will tell you that higher returns mean higher risk. In other words, leverage is risky. That is absolutely false. Leverage is only risky when people invest in assets that they have no control over. If a person has control, leverage can be applied with very little risk. 
The reason most financial advisors say that higher returns means higher risk is simply because they sell only investments that allow very little control. As mentioned above, my $17 million apartment house in Tulsa is a good investment to use leverage with because I have control over the operations, and the operations, that is, income collected through rents, determine the value of the investment. A house is not a good investment, and leverage is risky with a house because you do not control the value of the house. The value of a house is based on the market and the purchasing power of the currency it was purchased with. These things are out of your control. What is control? The major flaw in paper assets, such as savings, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and index funds, is the lack of control. And because you have no control, it is difficult and risky to apply leverage. Because these paper assets offer very little control, it is difficult to get a bank to lend you any money to invest in these assets. Financial intelligence is the key to control. Financial intelligence is the key to control. Financial intelligence increases control, and financial IQ measures the financial returns of financial intelligence. Take the 300-unit Tulsa apartment house as an example. Number 1. The Income Column The first step after acquiring the property is to increase the rent. The property is already profitable and cash flows with existing rents. In other words, I am already making money from day one. Even so, the objective or business plan is to raise the rent per unit to an additional $100 a month over the next three years by the following means. Raising the existing rents that are under market. Installing washers and dryers in all the units and charging extra for rent. Completing improvements to the property like landscaping and new paint. All of these can be completed by using the bank's money, not mine. When we provided the bank our business plan, these improvements were part of it and were factored into the total loan amount. Multiplying 300 units by $100 over three years, this increases the entire project's monthly income by $30,000 a month or an additional $360,000 a year. This increase in income is an example of control and leverage. If the plan works, three years from now, my financial IQ number four, leverage, will be infinite because the increase in income will be achieved by no additional capital from investors, just good knowledge of how to manage the asset, control, to higher and higher profitability. The increase in financial IQ is infinite because the increase in income will be achieved by using investor control and the bank's money. Number 2. The Expense Column The next controllable objective is to lower expenses. This is done in different ways. One specific example is by reducing labor costs through reduced administrative costs. Since we own other properties, many costs can be brought back to the main company. These are sometimes called back office expenses. They are the cost of accountants, bookkeepers, attorneys, and administrative staff. Other expenses that can come down are insurance, property taxes, water consumption, maintenance, and landscaping through better cost management and economy of scale. Also, expenses can be reduced and income can go up by keeping turnover low, the time it takes to re-rent an apartment. 
For example, the moment a tenant informs the management company that he or she is leaving, an ad is run advertising the apartment's availability. Once vacated, the cleaning crew comes in that day and the apartment is ready to show to a potential new tenant that night. And in many cases, an apartment is rented before the existing tenant even moves out. Obviously, many incompetent investors fail to reduce expenses and actually increase them, making the property a bad investment. Often they fail to manage the quality of tenants and the attractiveness of the property because they are trying to save money. In most cases, the property goes down in value. It's these poorly run properties that we like to buy because we can turn them into good investments through good property management. In other words, we make good money from bad investors. Property management is a key control. As you know, property management is one of the keys to profitability of real estate. Property management is a key control. Like most investors, I hate property management. That is why I have Ken McElroy, author of the ABCs of Real Estate Investing, as a partner. His company is absolutely the best. If you would like more information on property management or how to increase the value of real estate through property management, the Rich Dad Company offers several books and audio products created by my friend and investment partner, Ken, whose company is a leading property management company in the southwestern United States. One of the reasons why I stay clear of most stocks and mutual funds is because I have no control over expenses, especially management salaries, bonuses, and fees. It makes me sick to read about a greedy CEO's increase in pay even as shareholder value drops. Number 3. The Liability Column My 300-unit apartment house had an existing mortgage interest rate of just 4.95%. The low interest rate increases the asset value of the entire property. By adding a second mortgage at 6.5%, we created a blended rate of about 5.5%. 4.9% plus 6.5% equals 5.5%. This low interest rate is an important control and leverage. A percentage point on millions of dollars has a great impact on net income. For example, a 1% savings on a $10 million mortgage is $100,000 in extra income annually. Number 4. The Asset Column By increasing rents, reducing expenses, and reducing debt, or interest on debt, the asset value of the property increases. Before going on into higher forms of leverage and control, I believe it is important to recap and review the points covered so far before getting more complex. These are the seven points. Point number one, there are many types of leverage. The financial leverage most people are familiar with is the leverage of debt, that is OPM or other people's money. All five financial intelligences, which are increasing income, protection from predators, budgeting, leverage, and information, are forms of leverage. Leverage is anything that makes your job a little easier. It's easier to move a heavy object with a forklift, and it's easier to make a sophisticated investment decision with a higher financial IQ. Point number two. Most investors invest in paper assets, assets they have very little control over. Examples of paper assets are savings, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and index funds. Because these assets allow little to no control, 
These investors have very little leverage and low returns on investment and reflect a low financial IQ. An example of low financial IQ is a 5% return on savings, paying taxes on that return, and then having inflation almost wipe out its value. Point number three, an increase in returns does not mean an increase in risk. When financial advisors say that an increase in returns means an increase in risk, they are right when speaking about paper assets. They are wrong when speaking for all assets. Assets, such as a business or real estate, require more financial intelligence, allow for more financial control, and permit a higher degree of leverage with very low risk. The key to low risk is higher financial intelligence. This is why I recommend that people start small and stay small as they allow their financial intelligence to increase. With an increase in financial intelligence, their returns on their investments increase. Point number four. Most financial advisors are not investors. Financial advisors are simply salespeople. Most financial advisors, even many real estate brokers, invest only in paper assets if they invest at all. Most have very little leverage professionally and financially. In many cases, their professional and financial leverage ratios are one-to-one. -one. A one-to-one -one professional ratio means they get paid for their work and only their work. A day's pay for a day's work. As a business owner, I have thousands of people working to assist me. As an investor, like in the example of the Tulsa apartment house, I have 300 tenants helping me pay for my investment, the bank lending me $4 for every one of my dollars, and the tax department giving me tax breaks on my income. These are examples of different types of leverage. Point number five, financial education increases financial intelligence. Most people invest in paper assets, such as savings, stocks, bonds, and mutual and index funds, because they do not need or want control. All they want is to turn their money over to an investment advisor who hopefully does a good job, out of sight, out of mind. If people want more control, the first thing they need to control is their financial education, which increases their financial intelligence and hopefully increases their financial controls and leverage ratios. Point number six, leverage can work in two ways. Leverage can make you rich, and leverage can make you poor. This is why leverage requires financial intelligence and financial controls. With stocks, a trader can use the leverage of options. If a trader thinks the market is going up, they may use a call option, which is the right to purchase a stock at a certain price within a certain time. If the trader thinks the market is going down, they may use a put option or short the stock. In other words, a trader has the potential to make money if the stock price is going up or going down. The problem, however, is that the trader has no control over the asset, just control over the terms of their trade. Learning to trade a market, even in real estate, is an important part of an investor's financial education. Real estate investors also use options. In real estate, a call option is known as a down payment. Since most of my investment in real estate is based upon rental prices and operating costs of a property, up and down markets in real estate do not affect me as much. While I do occasionally flip a property, especially if someone is willing to pay me a ridiculous price for it, as a practice, I would rather buy a property and collect rent and other income for a long time. 
Then I look for another property to buy and hold. Point number seven. When most financial advisors recommend diversification, they are not really diversifying. There are two reasons why the diversification they recommend is not diversification. The first reason is that financial advisors invest in only one category of asset, paper assets. As the market crash of August 9 and 10, 2007 revealed, diversification did not protect paper asset values. The second reason is that a mutual fund is already a diversified investment. It is a hodgepodge of good and bad stocks. Professional investors don't diversify. As Warren Buffett says, diversification is a protection against ignorance. Diversification is not required if a person knows what they are doing. Instead of diversifying, professional investors do two things. One is to focus only on great investments. This saves money and increases returns. The second is to hedge. Hedging is another term for insurance. For example, my 300-unit apartment house is required by the bank to have all sorts of insurance. If the property burns down, insurance pays my mortgage and rebuilds the building. Best of all, the cost of the insurance is paid out of the rental income itself. Two of the main reasons I do not like mutual funds is that banks do not lend money on them, and insurance companies will not sell me insurance against catastrophic loss if the market crashes. And all markets crash. On to more leverage, higher returns, and lower risk. Focus, not diversification, is the key to more sophisticated leverage, higher returns, and lower risk. Focus requires more financial intelligence. Financial intelligence begins with knowing what you are investing for. In the world of money, there are two things investors invest for, capital gains and cash flow. Number one, capital gains. Another reason so many people think investing is risky is because they invest for capital gains. When a person says, I'm buying this stock, mutual fund, or piece of real estate, he or she is investing for capital gains, an increase in the price of the asset. For example, if I had purchased the $17 million apartment house hoping I could sell it for $25 million, then I would be investing for capital gains. Number two, cash flow. Investing for cash flow is a lot less risky. Investing for cash flow is investing for income. If I put savings in the bank and receive 5% in interest, I am investing for cash flow. While interest is low risk, the problem with savings is the return is low, taxes can be high, and the dollar keeps losing value. When I purchased the 300-unit apartment house, I was investing for cash flow. The difference is, I was investing for cash flow using my banker's money for a higher return on investment and paying less in taxes. That is a better use of leverage. What are you investing for? Most financial advisors recommend that a person invest in growth funds when he or she is young. Investing for growth is investing for capital gains. They advise older investors to then shift their growth funds into income funds or annuities. In other words, invest for cash flow when you are older. They believe cash flow is less risky and more certain. When it comes to capital gains or cash flow, there are three general types of investors. They are number one, 
those who invest only for capital gains. In the world of stocks, these people are called traders, and in the real estate market, they are called flippers. Their investment objectives are generally to buy low and sell high. When you look at the cash flow quadrant, traders and flippers are actually in the self-employed quadrant, not the investor quadrant. They are considered professional traders, not investors. On top of that, in America, traders and flippers are taxed at the higher self-employed quadrant tax rates and do not enjoy the benefits of the tax breaks the investor quadrant receives. Number two, those who invest only for cash flow. Many investors like savings or bonds because of the steady income. Some investors love municipal bonds because they pay a tax-free return. For example, if an investor buys a tax-free municipal bond paying 7% interest, the effective return on investment, ROI, is the same as receiving a 9% taxable return. Number three, the investor who invests for capital gains as well as cash flow. Years ago, old-time stock investors invested for both capital gains and cash flow. Old-timers still talk about the price of a stock going up as well as paying the investor a dividend. But that was in the old economy, the old capitalism. In the new capitalism, most paper investors are looking for the quick buck to make a killing. Today, the big investment houses are hiring the smartest whiz kids out of college and using computer models to look for the slightest market patterns they can exploit. For example, if the computer picks up a 1% differential, let's say in tech stocks, the investment house will bet millions of dollars hoping to gain 1% on millions of dollars in a few hours. This is very high leverage and very risky. These computer models also cause a lot of the volatility in the markets. When the stock market announces that program trading has been halted, it is talking about these computer programs being halted. The markets crash if the computers say sell. If the computers say buy, the markets boom, and then they crash. In other words, prices can go up or down for no fundamental or business reasons at all. A stock price may have no relationship to the value of the company because the computers created an artificial supply or demand. As an old-time investor in this new era of capitalism, I must be smart enough to invest for capital gains, cash flow, leverage of debt, and tax advantages, as well as be above the turmoil the whiz kids and computers cause in the marketplace. There are three components to being a good real estate investor. They are, number one, good partners. As Donald Trump says, you cannot do a good deal with bad partners. This does not mean bad partners are bad people. They may just be bad or wrong partners for you. For this 300-unit apartment house project to work, I must be sure I have good partners. Number two, good financing. Real estate is primarily a function of financing. Many people say, location, location, location. I say, financing, financing, financing. If you can secure good financing, the deal works. If you have bad financing, the deal will not. To illustrate my point, let's say the seller says, I want $35 million for my $17 million apartment complex. If the seller lets me finance the $35 million purchase price at $1 a month for 30 years with a balloon payment of $35 million at the end of the term, I would take the deal and give the seller the asking price. 
At $1 a month for 30 years, I can afford to pay $35 million for a $17 million property. As they say in the world of finance, I'll give you your price if you will give me my terms. Number 3. Good Management One of the reasons for my confidence in the $17 million 300-unit property is that I have good partners. Ken owns a property management company, and his partner Ross owns a real estate development company. In the following paragraphs, I will further explain how property management and development are essential to increasing rents, lowering expenses, and increasing asset value. Having control over these three components, good partners, good financing, and good management, I am more willing to use debt as leverage. Without control, I would probably not use debt financing. If there is higher risk, such as speculating in a stock or a commodity, I like to use only money I can afford to lose. Higher Returns with Less Risk I'm going to further explain my confidence in the investment, thanks to my partners and having control over the 300-unit apartment project, why I am willing to use a lot of leverage, why I believe the risk is low, how I make more money, and how I pay less in taxes. There are three more advanced investment strategies, investment strategies that require a higher level of financial intelligence. The three advanced leverage strategies are OPM, ROI, and IRR. Number one, OPM, other people's money. There are many ways to use OPM. With the 300-unit apartment building, I am using 80% leverage. First of all, the beauty of using the bank's money is that it is tax-free money. The other benefits of the bank's money are I keep the appreciation, cash flow income, tax benefits, and amortization. The bank puts up 80% of the money, but I receive 100% of the benefits. What a great partner! Number 2. ROI – Return on Investment A confusing concept for many investors is the return on their money, or ROI. For example, when you read financial publications, many mutual funds claim they have gone up by 10%. But my question is, did any of that 10% return to the investor? And how did they measure that 10%? Some funds measure the 10% by the price of the shares in the fund going up. For example, if a year ago the price per share in the fund was $10, and today it's $11, they can claim a 10% return. In this case, the return was measured in capital gains. As an investor who invests for both capital gains and cash flow, the only return I count is the cash flow. For example, if I invest $10 and each year after taxes I put $1 in my pocket from cash flow, my return is 10%. I do not count the return on asset appreciation because it is an estimate and does not become a reality unless I sell the asset. The difference is that one measure of the ROI is in the price of the stock, and the other measure of ROI is money in my pocket. I actually want both, 10% in asset appreciation and 10% cash in my pocket. 
but cash flow is the only return that can be tangibly measured while I hold the asset. More leverage, higher returns. The reason leverage is so important is because the higher the leverage, the higher the return. For example, if I buy a $100,000 rental unit with my money and I receive $10,000 a year net income, my cash-on-cash -cash return is 10%. If I borrow $50,000 and am still able to receive a $10,000 return, my cash-on-cash -cash return is 20%. If I finance the entire $100,000 and still receive a $10,000 return, my return is infinite. Infinite returns mean money for nothing. $10,000 flows into my pocket and nothing comes out. The renters cover my expense, and I receive the income. 